Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Frank Kyle. He is Dilly Professor of Psychology and Linguistics and Director of the Cognition and Development Lab at Yale University. And today we're going to talk a, a, a little bit about developmental psychology, particularly the development of causal thinking, of explanation and explanation schemes, and uh, toward the end of the interview, how that all, all of that applies to science. So, Dr. Kyle, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Oh, thank you for having me, Ricardo. I appreciate it. So let's start with causal thinking then. So what is it really about and how does it develop? A big question. We like to think of causal thinking as going beyond correlations. It's looking for some kind of relational connection that's often, uh, almost always has a temporal component, causes perceived effects. We like to think that uh, you can intervene on causal systems. So if you intervene on the cause, it produces different effects. It enables counterfactual thought. You can, what if this cause is impressive, what happened? So that's all the hallmarks of causal thought. That's important because uh, so much of psychology has focused just on correlations and associations. So the causal component is, is critical. How it develops is a matter of great controversy. Some people like to think that it's perceptual initially. So there's a famous study done by the Belgian psychologist way back, I think, in the 40s, called the Machat effect, uh, where a ball comes in or the image of all it goes like this, and the next one goes out. And infants and adults, infants later, but initially adults, see that as causal. If it comes in, there's a gap, and it goes off, they don't see it as causal. Or there's, two, or there's the wrong time delay. It turns out that, as best we can tell, even newborn infants prefer the causal interaction. But so do chickens, baby chicks. And so some people thought, well, that's a perceptual version of causality, but the infant has no abstract kind of notion of cause that it goes beyond that. But then other people started looking at other kinds of causality, like social causality, where there might be contingent interactions between people. I might nod, you nod, like we're doing right now, and some of the are causally connected. So the other alternative is that we start off with cause in several different systems, and then slowly by experiencing, we come to an abstract representation of cause. The third view, which I tend to favor, is that we don't learn cause, it's part of the digital language of thought. It is part, it's like part of our logical vocabulary. It's like you don't learn or and and, it's just part of how we work. And I think that's, that of course leads to the question of how evolution gave it to us, but I don't know. But it seems to me, one way or another, by the time the infants are just a few months old, we're very versatile causal creatures. They're not just linked to visual perception. And what does it mean to treat the world in mechanistic terms? Yeah, so this has been a big movement in the philosophy of science the last 20 or 30 years. People like Bill Bechtel and Carl Craver and others. And it's the idea that we don't just look for cause. We look for something kind of like a clockworks mechanism. We like to think of objects pushing each other, acting each other. If you remember your college physics, there's the idea of work, that something displaces something over space and it takes energy. That's how we kind of like to think of things, I think. So I think that when we look out in the world, we are particularly driven towards saying, well, what's the, under, what's the underlying you know, mechanism? Mm-hmm. And this is why uh, uh, young kids are actually driven to mechanisms. They like to see mechanisms. They're, if you give them a mechanistic explanation of how something works, they prefer it to a mere correlational one or a causal one. They want to envision some kind of, this kind of effect or gears or levers or something like that. And that's surprising because they prefer it well before they start school. 
uh, and I asked you about how causal thinking develops, so do we know how mechanistic thinking develops? We know it's present uh, at least by three or four. My guess is if we had the right measurements, we could show probably preferences start earlier. But what happens after that is it gets more detailed, more refined. Children start to realize that the elaboracy of mechanisms. I mean, you go to medical school to learn mechanisms. I mean, there's this whole myth that children start off concretely and then go to abstractly. It's almost the opposite. They often start abstractly having a sense that there's something causing this, but I don't know the details. And they slowly fill in the concrete details over time. It takes a lifetime to fill in many concrete details. That's one thing that happens. They get more adept at distinguishing between mechanism and function. Mm -hmm. So I can know how a cell phone works in terms of what, why, how to push buttons, but no idea the mechanism. And sometimes they're hard to tell apart, but I think they get more adept at that. They may get more nuanced views of how mechanisms vary across domains. They might understand mechanisms for machines, but have trouble seeing it in biological systems. In psychological systems, I think we all have trouble seeing mechanisms. There aren't very good mechanisms for psychology. So they get more you know, nuanced in how they apply it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's any major qualitative change. I think it tends to be a gradual kind of accretion. And so what would you say is the relationship between causal thinking and mechanistic thinking? Think of mechanism thinking as a subset of, of causal. It's more, it, it, it requires uh, some kind of breakdown of the units. Usually it's hierarchical. So you have like, um, if I tell you how, to, you ask me how does a refrigerator work? I'll say, well, there's a compressor and there's evaporation tubes and there's thermostat. And then you, I could unpack each of those and how each of those work. And so it has a hierarchical structure with stable units, subunits. Um, you know, Herb Simon, the great psychologist and quantum scientist many years ago, talked about the idea of stable subassemblies. The complex systems tend to have stable subunits and mechanisms always have that and they interact in these kind of sequential ways. And so related to those questions, when children evaluate the internal complexity of, mach of machines, what effects does their functional diversity have on them? Yeah, this was a surprise to us. We, we saw an initial study by David Silverwood Brown giving some suggestions there. So Rick Arline did a series of studies where we showed an object which could act um, do a couple two different things. It could wash uh, blue jeans and it could wash t-shirts. And another mechanism could wash blue jeans and it could wash glassware. Mm -hmm. And we asked them which one had a more complicated interior. And preschoolers said, well, the second one has to have a more complicated interior. And you ask, well, how could they possibly know this? They don't know how it, They have no idea about the details of how these things work. So it's very abstract. They know if it does more different things, it must have more complex enabling interiors. Now that's interesting because it works very well for mechanical systems. For electronic systems, like a solid state circuit, you can't see any of that. And this is a bit off topic, but one of my great um, interests recently is, is the question of whether children are losing that insight because they don't see how insights work anymore. All they see is solid state circuits. But they are, they are very early in traditional societies and until now at least aware that the more diversity activities that they engages in, the more likely it is to have a complex interior. And, and so, again, it's, yeah. it's abstract, they don't need to know the details. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so from the perspective of developmental psychology, what is explanation and how do children develop it? It's complicated. Uh, first of all, there's a difference between being able to explain and appreciate different kinds of explanations. So let's start. Obviously, being able to give an explanation is usually embedded in language. It wouldn't have to be, but it usually is. 
if we leave that aside, we say, has the child appreciated an explanation? They look for something that describes, I, well, I'm going to focus on causal explanations. You could have a mathematical explanation that has no cause. But for the most part, explanations give you the causal and functional kind of accounts. And they strive for coherence. They try to link things together and give you an account that holds together to describe a phenomenon in the real world, describe its stability. But there are actually many different kinds of explanations. The ones that explain the origins of a thing, like how did this come into being, either as an individual object or as a kind of objects. Ones that explain constituent, how does it operate in real time. There's a whole family of different kinds of explanations. And the other thing that's very important is explanations are always partial. You never have full explanatory insight, you only have parts and fragments. So if I ask you how almost anything works, I don't know what your specialty is, but I think you had a medical background. If I asked you how a kidney works, you'd start giving me details. And I could keep pushing you and eventually I'd reach holes. Mm-hmm. So explanations have this peculiar property <clears throat> where they <clears throat> excuse me, where they strive for coherence, but they always have gaps. And the really weird thing is they're often contradictory. So we have these fragments that we think of and lean on as explanations. But one of the a classic studies done years ago by Bill Brewer at Illinois, he goes up to college undergraduates and he says, so um, how, do, how, do, how do you explain the seasons? And they say, oh, it's easy. In the winter, the sun is farther away from the earth than the summer, so it's colder. He said, okay, so when it's winter here, what's it doing in Australia? And they say, well, it's summer. And then they stop and they say, oh my God. And they realized for the first time that they held these two contradictory beliefs. It couldn't be there. They had, they had, they had, they, these fragments were not commensurable. So it's been surprising how often we have these two fragments that either contradict each other or just don't relate. And this is this idea of coexistence of different fragments. So explanations are part of that. But what I'm trying to say is they're never as rich and complete as we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are there any specific cognitive mechanisms associated with explanation? Yeah, there are a bunch. Um, I don't know if they're explicit to just explanation, but we certainly are attracted to simplicity, uh, the number of elements in explanation. But on the other hand, Sam Johnson, one of my father's students, has shown that um, they're also sensitive to complexity if you don't handle enough data. They, um, what else is good? Oh, they don't like circularity. Very young kids, well before kindergarten. If you say, you know, why, why do, uh, I don't know, why do, uh, cows give milk and you say, oh, that's because they give uh, off uh, white stuff that, that tastes really good. And they say, no, that's not an explanation. The kids know that. They know it's unsatisfying. So that's a, uh, they want the explanations to actually reach a kind of conclusion. Again, that gets tricky because if it's a, if a circle of a circular explanation is large enough, it starts to give information. We haven't explored that enough, but that's an interesting topic. So um, they appreciate some of the parts of explanations, but not all, nor, nor do we. And psychological mechanisms, simplicity, coherence. There's a lot of evidence that they evaluate coherence. Um, There are also another whole class of explanations we haven't talked about, which are narratives. And these are where we just tell a good story about an individual. And we tend to use those more in psychology. Uh, And those, we're not sure exactly why they work, but they do seem to be very appealing in psychology. And do preferred explanatory schemes vary across development and cultures? You know, this hasn't been looked at as much as you might imagine. Um, my own hunch is that there are a bunch of different schemes. I mentioned some like uh, ontologic, sorry, ontogenic or um, sort of nomothetic, rule-like in real time, constitutive. I think all cultures have all of them, but they have different precedence hierarchies. They have different order of, of primary use. 
So in one culture, someone might look to narrative first, another culture might look to mechanistic, or they might do so in different domains. There's a lot of evidence in cross-cultural work that people really look at their local context and they can switch between one mode of explanation and another. But I don't think anybody's limited. I don't think there are very few cultures where they just can't engage in a particular perspective. It's possible in certain highly autocratic cultures or that people feel very careful about not expressing certain kinds of explanations because they seem too rebellious. But I think that's un hopefully uncommon. Mm -hmm. Uh, so another question related to your work I uh, would like to ask you about is uh, when it comes to estimating visual quantities, uh -huh. what is the relationship between perceived area and number? Yeah, so this is work that's been done by my former grad student, Sammy Yosef, he's now at 10. And it's pretty dramatic. As you know, there's been a lot of studies, very famous studies, showing that children and even infants seem to be able to estimate number, approximate number from large displays. And being good scientists, they always control for area, because if you had a lot of area, maybe that's what they're using to, instead of number. Mm -hmm. But what Sammy said is, well, you don't want to know what the real area is, you want to know what the perceived area is. Because if the perceived area isn't controlled for, we don't have anything. And he discovered, when trying to check for that, that people, there's a systematic bias in how we perceive area, uh, which is that we add the, basically the, the width and the height rather than multiply them. And if you can imagine, that's a huge distortion. Mm -hmm. So when we looked at closely, we found that in many cases, uh, children were not estimating number, but estimating stuff, the amount of stuff present. They're certainly capable of doing number, but it may not be as dominant and precocious as we used to think it is. And I think that makes sense. If you're out picking for blueberries, you want to know how much blueberries you're going to get to eat, not the precise number. Mm -hmm. In fact, it might be relatively rare in life where precise number matters, or even approximate number. Mm -hmm. So the, so the out of the air heuristic is that, and that's how it impacts number. Right. Uh, and when it comes to Bayesian reasoning, uh, are we really Bayesian reasoners? I mean, for example, no. do we treat uncertainty as probabilities or as bits? This is a really interesting topic because I'm not a, a specialist in the area, but I, I look at it enough to have some sense of it. And this, again, is work done mostly by my former grad student, Sam Johnson, although also my former student, Matt Fisher, works in this area. What happened is the Bayesian revolution in cognitive science was very exciting to people because it seemed to show a way of how people handle probabilities and combine probabilities. And this was exciting because it fit with this revolution in computer science with uh, using statistical patterns to make AI, mm -hmm. which is taking off. So people thought, oh my gosh, all the stuff they said computers can't do, they can do. And Bayesian is a psychological thing, usually doing Bayesian calculations, we solved all the problems. But they really haven't. And the problem is that if you took Bayesian calculations in any detail in human mind, they explode computationally. Trying to take all those probabilities and multiply them together makes even relatively simple problems with a few probabilities explode in numbers. Computers can do that, at least some, but people can't. So the way around it is to rather than say this is 0.6 or 0.9 probability, round it off to yes or no. You know, it's, it happens or it doesn't happen. Now that distorts and it makes mistakes, but it can give you approximate results, which actually aren't bad. And Sam Johnson has done a whole bunch of studies showing that, in fact, people do that all the time. They distort to the yes, one or zero. And, and I think that is an important thing, challenge for the Bayesian views moving forward is we have to learn you can't just be probability computers. You have to do, find some way of simplifying the space so as to make progress.
But uh, how do you think we should interpret that? Do you think that we should say that we are not Bayesian reasoners at all, or we are Bayesian reasoners, but with some caveats? I think in very simplified circumstances, we're probably okay at doing Bayesian reasoning, just a simple, okay. but I think as it gets more complicated, we may switch. I mean, we do, without even awareness, uh, subconsciously feel like, monitor frequencies and uh, mm -hmm. do statistical learning. And amazingly, we can do statistical learning on several different channels at the same time. But when you try to render that into some kind of conscious or thinking, things fall apart. And it's interesting, you'll see that some of the most hottest current areas of Bayesian research are building in these little micro worlds, which are not Bayesian at all. They're sets of rules. They take some of the rules that video games use, for example, to get their Bayesian stuff off the ground. So I think they're starting to recognize we've got to put some stuff in these systems to make them computable in human minds. Stuff that's not Bayesian. Right. Uh, so another question then, what is the illusion of knowledge depth? I call it the illusion of explanatory depth. Uh, and this is work I did with Leon Rosenblatt. What we discovered, early on I used to do a lot of work on concepts and categories. I used to say, well, Concepts are not isolated things, they're parts of theories. It's where the, the role they occupy in theoretical structure or explanatory structure gives them their meaning. And then people pushed me and said, well, so how good are these theories? And as we look closer, we started to realize that our intuitions about our, our explanatory theories are way, way off. In general, if you ask someone how something works, how well do you think you understand how a flush toilet works? People might say on a 10 point scale, seven or eight, we teach them how to use the scale. Then you ask them to actually explain how it works, and they're down at three or two, and they're terrible. And we've done this again and again. It's been widely replicated. It's a particularly strong for explanations. If you ask them how well they know facts, like how far away is Nairobi, they'll either know or they don't know. They're there so they can estimate facts. They can also do narratives. How well do you know the plot of, um, uh, I don't know, Star Wars? They can figure out and recall it and do it. But we don't originally store elaborate explanations. We don't have access to that information. So unlike facts, unlike narratives, unlike a host of other kinds of structures, our estimates about our explanatory knowledge are really distorted. That may not be so bad because we can outsource that knowledge and find it in other minds, the division of government labor. So we sort of know it through proxy, but we often think it's in our own minds. So I think it's actually a good thing, especially when you're young and kids show it very strongly. It gives them a cut. They don't get too discouraged. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, getting into science, uh, can we say that science is intuitive or not, really? I, you know, I was thinking about that. It may depend on the scientists. You read different people, philosophers, scientists, and how they go about it. Mm -hmm. I certainly think from the scientists I know, I was an undergrad at a science institution, MIT, and I think it's very intuitive. I think people all the time go on hunches. They then try to formalize them and, and you know go beyond that and make it explicit and shared so there's no sort of guesswork. Mm -hmm. But you're often having to make inductions. And when you make inductions, you're making guesses, going on hunches. I think sometimes we push towards the mechanistic hunches because that's what we're most comfortable with. And as if you follow the history of quantum mechanics, you'll, you'll see the astonishing thing about that field is that at the turn of the beginning of the 20th century, uh, they had this amazing math that emerged, the imaginary numbers and everything else allowed them to make super precise predictions. Mm -hmm. But no one could agree on what that meant physically in terms of what their intuitive hunches are. And now 100 years later, they still don't agree. They have these very different views, multiple worlds, I can't remember them all. And so it's very hard to get their heads 
at an intuitive level around this phenomenon. So there's something about them wanting to do that. Science can proceed mathematically, but it's unsatisfying when it does that. People want to have something more than that. And, and so I, I, and I'll give you a different, different example. Mm-hmm. I was re- reading a book on, uh, on quantum mechanics a few months ago, and I, I learned that in, when you get in the, inside the atom, the subatomic particles, if they start separating, you start pulling them apart, they start p- pulling back at each other stronger and stronger. And that's very odd because most things like that, there's the inverse square law. The uh, attractions get weaker and weaker, get further apart. Mm-hmm. And so there, were, there was some meeting with these quantum physicists saying, how can we model this? And someone raised their hand and said, why not think of a rubber band? And as you stretch out, it gets stronger and stronger. And that's a stupid model at a quantum level that, that doesn't work. But it was immediately obvious then that they should now think of their math in those terms. And so we often use hunches like that as, for analogies that then might, at Maxwell, uh, the famous person who, who integrated electromagnetism, magnetism, electronics, electricity, mm-hmm. went back to Faraday's experiments and all them sort of mechanical models and used those and the hunches he had. So he didn't like the other mathematicians of his time. He thought they really were just complicating things unnecessarily. So the one, probably one of the most, three or four most important people in history of science went back to something much more intuitive to develop his math. So that's what I mean by the hunches, I think, being all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what would be folk science and how would you, would you say it differs from science uh, as it's yeah. usually done and institutionalized? It, it's again, uh, <clears throat> not well defined. My interpretation of folk science is it's the kind of science that emerges naturally in communities without formal instruction. Mm-hmm. And um, it is often even implicit, but it doesn't, it, sometimes it has explicit parts so that people might have a certain um, partial belief about there being uh, evil spirits and that helps organize the system. Mm-hmm. But um, it's obviously not going to be as rigorous. It's usually not as bound to evidence and, and verification and stuff. But it may operate in some hunches, like causality is important. It also has distortions like essences. I think many people argue that we are essentialists. We think there's something inside where there isn't that can lead to racism and all sorts of other problems. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it, most scientists, even in the lab, are not completely different to folk scientists. As I said earlier, they rely on these intuitive notions as well. Folk science does not have to be innate, but I think it might rely on some very simple early uh, emerging fields. There's a sort of naive physics and naive psychology and naive biology that kids learn without being taught it. And all those undergird our beliefs. And you can see people slipping into these. I, I was interested to see that when people teach science, uh, even at the university level, they often ask their students, what's the function of a neutron? And you shouldn't ask that. There's no function to neutrons. They're not, they're not designed by anybody. But it's such an easy way of explaining that the neutron performs sort of insulation between the proton and the electron. And so people will use these incorrect sort of folk science conceptions quite a lot, yeah. uh, even when they're inappropriate, even in the sciences. I think one thing that's also true is more and more, I think it's important for scientists to be part of their mission is to, to communicate to the public. Everybody should have some be participants and know what's going on. And that's becoming a problem, again, with AI facilitated science because I don't know if you're aware of this phenomenon, but increasingly across all the sciences is this problem they call black boxing, where as they develop these very 
complex deep learning systems to analyze something like the genetic control of height or neuroimaging data, they can get models with hundreds of thousands or even billions of internal parameters. And no one knows how they, they arrive at the result. Mm -hmm. So now you have science without explanation, just sharper and sharper prediction. That's something totally new in history of science. We've never had that before. And it's very, very concerning because I'm not sure any of us feel that comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned these briefly before, but to what extent do people rely on the division of cognitive labor in their own culture? I think, you know, you go back to Adam Smith and the division of labor is the essential way in which economies can get more, you know, you remember the analogy to the pin factory where you divide up the labor and you get much more efficiency. Mm -hmm. I think it would, anytime culture got vast about 50 people and had a stable kind of community of living, divisions of labor happened all the time. And every time you have divisions of labor, you have divisions of cognitive labor, because if you're a specialist in medicine versus architecture or hunting, you're going to have different knowledge bases. But everyone needs to tap into that from time to time. Which expert do you seek out? If you have a problem, who do you talk to? Mm -hmm. So what we've learned in our own work and in, now in many other labs is that even very young children are aware of the fact that there are different pockets of knowledge around them and they should access them. So how do you tell? Well, one cue is status or, or labels, like he's a doctor or he's a this or he's that. Uh, deference, who are, who are people deferring to? Who do they look to for authority? But one of the most interesting ones is actually knowing something about mechanism. Asking people questions and seeing who can supply mechanism. If you're, if someone's trying to fool you and tell you that they know something and they don't, you can usually find out that they're full of it by asking them to spell the mechanism. It's very hard for people to make up mechanisms on the fly who don't know what they're talking about. Uh, a few people can, but they're, they're very rarely can. The other thing you can do is you can ask someone who's making a claim, what would it take to prove you wrong? Mm -hmm. And it always amazes me how people who are dogma just are unable to just say, nothing would, I said, well, then it's religion, it's not, it's not a science. If you say nothing could prove you wrong, then, then you're not really engaging in the game. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was answering your question. Mm -hmm. No, uh, let's go back to science now, science itself. So uh, taking into account the kinds of topics we've talked about here today, uh, how does this all explain how science as an institution work? I mean, uh, does, it, does it really have anything to do with the thinking of scientists being much different from that of lay people? Well, I think the scientists say yes, because they're, 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 they're always, they look for evidence, they check their work, they, 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 they amplify their, their powers to communities. Uh, some philosophers of science say you can have these people who just know that their job is to collect evidence for this or that, and they may not have to have the big picture. Yeah. Again, it's changing. You have papers now with a thousand authors. Mm -hmm. It's a very different from you know one or two authors. Yeah. So that these, these communities can have such incredible divisions that no one sees the big picture. But I hate that kind of science. I, I think if you don't know what how you're figuring into the larger system, that can't be very rewarding. I like to think there's more continuity than we think, and, and, and by enabling more people to get involved, you might get interesting new ideas out of nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's about a controversy. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like science is easy. I understand it's hard. But um, I'd also think it's we try to be as inclusive as we can when we do it. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, to me, science is for everyone because it makes the world come into color better. It's richer. If I know in the spring what, how a bird feeds and what's going on in its physiology, 
how its songbird center changes as spring goes, it explodes in size inside its brain. I see that bird differently. I walk outside. I've been, I, do, I teach a course on wonder and how, how important it is to wonder how the world works. And to my students how to present examples of it. And we do it in the spring and we all go outside and see the world differently. We see it richer, it's, it's more three-dimensional. It's like going from black and white to color. So I think that's what science does for everyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's aesthetic. It's not just, you know, making better bombs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so earlier I asked you if you think that science is intuitive. Um, when it comes to that common idea that science is really difficult and difficult to learn, where do you think that those intuitions come from? There's a lot of lot we could say there too. I think everyone can do some access to some scientific findings, but math is obviously one issue. Some areas of the sciences get very mathy very quickly, and children or or even adults can be very put off by that, often because they were taught it badly. I mean, I think we have not really thought carefully about how to teach math, and in many countries, the people who teach math at the elementary school level didn't like math themselves. And so it's not good to, if you know that the teacher hates math, you can sort of detect that and you're not going to enjoy it yourself. So it can be contagious in a negative way. So there's that. There's also sometimes the people want to, you know, we've all seen doctors who love to explain to you the disease and help you get through it. But then there are doctors who get very defensive and don't want to tell you, you say, so why are you doing this procedure? Why are you giving me this drug? Why aren't you giving me this drug? They feel mm -hmm. challenged and, and get very upset. So. To the extent that that second thing happens, that, that can make people become alienated from science and not want to be part of it, feel like it's something they can't access. And I think people like to sometimes do that as a way of acting, having control, but I think it's the worst thing you can do. Uh, I, I think it, it's something to be shared, just like a sunset. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have then one last question for you, and since we've been talking a lot about the topics in developmental psychology today, um, in what ways can developmental research inform the study of cognition in adults? Lots of ways. One of my favorite examples is uh, an essay by Stephen Jay Gould, the evolutionary biologist. Mm -hmm. If you want to know why a zebra is a white animal with black stripes or a black animal with white stripes, it's very hard to tell by looking at the adult. But if you watch it, it, it how it develops embryologically, you see that it starts off as a black animal, then with suppressors and make the white pigment-free sections. So you suddenly see the, you see the animals develop in a very different way. And developmental psychology can do that all over the place. It can tell you what is the basic functional architecture on which other stuff is built, what is the core versus optional systems. So it gives you those kinds of insights. You can also get insights into how representations are physically instantiated. I'll say what I mean. I was very interested in why all mammals, actually all, all, all vertebrates have uh, five digits for the most part. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so people have been thinking about this for years and they thought embryologically, there must be somewhere in, in the genetic code, five, maybe there's five repeat versions of a gene for digits. There's nothing like that. You can't find anything like that. But then someone had the cleverness of going back to the writings of Alan Turing, the computer scientist, mm -hmm. and found that he had written a paper showing that when you have two gradients crisscrossing, two liquids crisscrossing with chemicals, they set up interference patterns where if you tune the gradient, you can get any number you want. So they've now done these studies with uh, various organisms where they change the gradient and get three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten digits in development, emerging. Why does that matter? When people are saying, how is a concept represented in the brain? How does a concept emerge? 
they think there's the same version of the concept all the way down. But no, there could be some amazingly different initial representation. So it changes your whole view of how the brain might embody uh, the mind, if you see what I'm saying. By looking at how it emerges in development, you start to see what I think is the underlying physical mechanism might be very, very different. I don't think you could tell a story of adult cognition without doing development as part of it. I think they're, they're the whole package. In fact, it's interesting in biology, people almost do it automatically. If you take courses in a medical school, as I was lucky enough to do early on, you'll find that they usually talk about the development and even the evolution of the organ as well as just the adult functioning. That's that's almost obligatory. And two, rarely in cognitive psychology, you do that. You start doing just the adults function and nothing about the origins. And you lose insight. Mm -hmm. And please correct me if I'm wrong, and this will be my last question, but isn't it also the case that uh, when we think about developmental psychology, we tend to think mostly about child development and applying it to children, but developmental psychology also involves understanding uh, how psych the psychology of adults and older people develops as well? It, it does. It has a very different flavor and you'll find very yeah. relative people work in both areas. There's no question that things change over the life, lifespan. Um, there are all sorts of folk, folk beliefs about this too. In many countries, there's an age on the limit which you can be president. I think you know, in the United States, I think it's 45, I can't remember. So there's, a, there's an implicit belief that some kind of wisdom must takes time to develop. Um, I don't think we have to be 80 like our current president to do that way, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it, there is that idea. There's also work showing that towards the end of life, uh, people change and become much more sensitive to positive information and try to ignore negative information. So there's sort of positivity bias that emerges. And that's very interesting. You find it in diaries. There's some famous studies of, of nuns in monasteries in their diaries over the years. You find it, them changing to more and more positivity kind of memories. So there are these lifespan changes, um, but they tend to have a different flavor. Uh, cognitive, de cognitive decline uh, doesn't mm -hmm. look like, it's, it's not like you just turn everything in reverse. It's a whole different kind of, but there's some message, there's some morals that take over. For example, learning how to rely on others is something that you need to do as you get older and older. And, mm -hmm. and that some of your stuff you did as a kid might be helpful there. Um, and some of the cues you use to, to kind of rewrite notes more. I'm in my 70s. I pay attention to, to the fact that my memory is going to be declining, so I have to think of outside support to kind mm -hmm. of enhance it. And there's, oh, I'll tell you, the most interesting thing in all this literature, which is surprising, not fully understood, is the role of exercise. Uh, this is work that's been super well documented. Very vigorous, high-intensity exercise in the elderly, incredibly slows down aging, cognitive aging, which is a very nice, simple rule. Um, but that's not necessarily at all similar to young kids. So it is a form of development or just change, as you might call it, you know, of development. Development implies that they're getting better and better. They're not, they're not, there isn't, it'd be lying to think that there isn't some diminishment function. Uh, I can't bit beef up my muscles like I used to now. I have to sort of hold on. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Kyle, just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find you and your work? Well, they can just go to Yale Psychology Department and look up my name. I don't have the, just, just type in Yale Psychology and look at the faculty listing. And I have a website there with all my stuff. Um, or you can go, go, go to Google Scholar, just type in my name, Frank C. Mm -hmm. Kyle, and everything comes up. Um, but I want to thank you. You do a great service to so many fields. It's wonderful to have someone who has such broad ranging interest as you, who aggregates across it. It's fun to talk to you, to see someone 
who cares about these issues and clearly just enjoys them. Well, thank you so much for the kind words and thank you also for taking the time to come on the show and it's been really fun to talk to you. Same to you. My great pleasure. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Amel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Des Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortesus, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dealey Jr., Holt Erickburn, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, Zizar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Venegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.